Uh, dear Father, uh, we do thank you, Lord, that uh, that we are here today on a day that is so special to each of us. Father, it is the day long ago in which you fulfilled your promises. You fulfilled the promise you made first to Adam and woman in the garden, that there would be the, the seed who would crush Satan. And you made that promise to Abraham, Father, that through his seed, all nations would be blessed. And Father, you blessed us when you brought that seed, that son of a woman, Christ, who would come and die for us on the cross. And Father, we are so thankful for that. For without it, Father, nothing we say or believe, nothing we put our hope in would matter. Father, once a day or once a year on this day, Father, we have the opportunity to remember that day. But it is a day, Father, that marks every day in our life for who would we be without Christ? What hope could we have without knowing that he has conquered death? What purpose would we serve, Father, if life was nothing more than a walk for our own sake, ending in the grave? It would make everything, Father, vain and pointless. We thank you, Lord, that you've given us purpose and given us meaning, given us hope, given us the hope of glory. Let us remember that not just today, Father, but as we think about it on every day. As we know it will come to pass in the day to come when we will see you face to face. And today as we study, Father, we don't study a passage that would typically come to mind on a day like this. But we know, Father, you had a purpose in it. So we pray you'd use today to to meet that purpose in our hearts as we open the Bibles together. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Most years when Easter rolls around, I would suspend my teaching of whatever book I'm in because we want to get to the topic of that weekend, right? So we can focus on that day. This year, my travel schedule doesn't let me do that. I have to stay in the book so we can finish it before I go. But what I love about that is that the Lord's sovereignty doesn't care at all about my travel schedule. And so he saw fit to put us at this point in the book, which you're going to find is actually very appropriate in some ways for the meaning of today, the meaning of Easter. So as we move forward in the study today, you're going to find a topic on the page that I am pretty sure has never been preached on an Easter Sunday. Paul introduced the topic for today earlier in our study of chapter 5, back in verse 21, where we ended last week. If you look at verse 21, it's where he told the church that we are to be subject to one another. And what we said when we looked at that last time was, Paul says, that within the body of Christ, there are always spiritual authorities over everyone, and we ought to be willing to submit to that authority in our life, to that spiritual authority. And that topic itself is a continuation from a larger conversation in this chapter. It's a conversation about making the most of our time, being wise with how we live in the days God gives us. Because you live on earth for a time to serve a mission. And that mission is all important. You don't have long to fulfill it. The days, Paul says, are evil, which means you have your sin and the world constantly working against your own mission. And all that is to say, don't be foolish. We can't afford to waste any days. We can't afford to not be focused on the mission for the time God gives us. And that led into the conversation of submission. Because Paul's point was, God has provided for each believer spiritual leadership within their life somewhere, which has its purpose in helping us avoid wasting time, in directing us away from foolish things. Of course, that is, if we are listening to those authorities, if we are willing to submit to what they tell us in our lives. And nowhere is this more evident than in the home. 
in the Christian home where the Lord has structured relationships for the benefit of everyone concerned, for the spiritual benefit of the family. So having introduced this need for submission in his larger conversation about living a wise Christian life, now Paul begins to elaborate on what it looks like, on what he means when he says submit to one another. And he starts with the Christian home. I'm going to start in verse 22. And as I said earlier, I know this subject will just seem like completely out of left field for an Easter Sunday. But bear with me because Paul gets to Easter before he's done. Verse 22. Wives, Paul says, be subject to your own husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife as Christ also is the head of the church. He himself being the savior of the body. But as the church is subject to Christ, so also the wives ought to be to their husbands in everything. Now, I want to give you an overview of where Paul's going before we dive into this first step, because keeping what Paul says in a larger context is very helpful to understanding where he's going. And Paul's teaching on submission will run from verse 22 all the way to Ephesians chapter 6, verse 9. And in that section of the letter, Paul addresses several things. Let me list them for you. Paul says that there is the submission of wives to husbands. Then he will say that there is the submission of husbands to their wives. Then he will say there is the submission of children to their parents, and then he will follow with, parents, be submitted to your children. And then there is the submission of slaves to masters, and the submission of masters to their slaves. Now, if that summary surprises you at all this morning, that's probably because only one of those six relationships gets any attention these days. Am I wrong? The one where Paul opens saying a wife is to submit to her husband is the only thing anybody ever notices or talks about and in fact argues about in the church. And that unbalanced view of what Paul is teaching is unfortunate for several reasons. First, that narrow focus overshadows Paul's larger point. What is Paul's larger point? His larger point is everybody is subject to one another, though in different ways. As the great philosopher Bob Dylan once said, y'all got to serve somebody. So no one is sacrificing more than anyone else in this list. All are being served by someone else in this list. That's the first thing is we've completely made the thing so unbalanced we've lost the big picture. Secondly, a negative perspective on just one of these or any of these relationships brings Paul's instructions and turns it on its head. It makes the whole thing negative when it's actually a positive. Paul is portrayed by many as having something against women, as being some kind of ancient misogynist. And that's not at all what's going on here. The truth, as is often the case, is exactly the opposite of what culture tells you. Leon Morris put it this way. After centuries of Christian teaching, we can scarcely appreciate the revolutionary nature of Paul's view on family life set out in this passage. Among the Jews of his day... As also among the Romans and the Greeks, women were seen as secondary citizens with few or no rights. The pious male Jew daily said a prayer in which he thanked God for not making him a woman. And the law allowed him to divorce his wife simply by writing a bill of divorcement. And then he could marry whoever he wanted. The wife had no such right. My point being this, Paul's teaching is countercultural to a misogynistic culture. He's actually empowering and freeing women, giving them equal rights in the family, giving them equal right to expect sacrifice from their husband as they would for him. And that was out of character with what was expected, not in some way putting women down as it's often portrayed today. Paul teaches a wife is equal to her husband in every sense of submission 
Finally, the third reason this is all backward in people's minds is if you hold Paul's teaching in contempt on any of these relationships, friends, you are holding God's word in contempt. Let's not pretend otherwise. The book of Ephesians is in the Bible for a reason. And Paul's instructions on submission in this letter are scripture. And they are scripture as much as the gospel of John. They are scripture as much as the letter of Romans. If you don't like what you're reading here, then why do you read any of it? Because it's all from the same source. Therefore, no one can dispute or ignore Paul's words on this subject any more than they would on anything else that's written in the Bible. For friends, if you're picking and choosing, you're not obeying anything. You're just reading what you like. So, with that exhortation, let's turn to the instructions. Paul says wives would be subject to their own husbands. Now, before we look at what Paul is asking a wife to do, let's look at what he didn't say. And what he didn't say is a wife be subject to all men. He said a wife is to be subject to her own husband. He's not calling for male dominance in society. He's only concerned for the relationship between a married couple. So a Christian woman may aspire to any opportunity that life affords her. She may lead large organizations. She may command many under her charge, which would include men. Biblical Christianity puts no limits on a Christian woman's authority, save two things only. First, the Bible says clearly that a woman is not to assume leadership over men in the church. And secondly, a wife may not assume leadership over her husband in the family. And Paul's instruction to wives here is that a woman would be subject to the authority of her husband in her home. The Greek word for subject is a military term. It refers to someone being under the authority of a superior in rank or in authority. And it describes a voluntary subjection, a voluntary subjection, much like a man who might enlist in the military. He willingly enters and subjects himself to the authority of his superiors. But, friends, once he takes that role, he is now obligated to submit to his superiors. He has put himself there, but once there, he is there now with no choice. And the husband is the authority figure in the home. God has appointed him to that role so that in a healthy marriage, a godly husband and wife together will partner in making decisions and in running the household. In fact, I would submit to you that if you look at a family, a Christian family, in which these principles are being applied properly, you might not even notice that the husband is the authority figure in the home. Because what you would see is a home that simply reflects the harmony of a family operating in submission to authority. It would just be in the background. But we all know sooner or later, in any marriage, opinions are going to differ. People are going to have conflict. That's not unexpected. A wife's preference concerning some matter will conflict with her husband's preference sooner or later. Under those circumstances, the word of God declares that the husband is the final authority in the home. And therefore, a wife must submit to her husband's authority in circumstances where they can't otherwise agree. Now, understandably, it's tempting for a wife to hear these words, to read them, and then to immediately seek for some kind of qualification. You know, some kind of exception to the rule here. How does this really work? A wife might say, well, you know, I'll gladly submit to my husband when he's making wise decisions. Or if he's living a godly example, you know, he inspires me by his godly lifestyle. Well, of course I want to follow that. Or if he treats me with respect, shows respect for my opinions, weighs them in his decision making. Well, yeah, then I can certainly submit. Well, those qualifications may sound reasonable, but they don't stand the test of Scripture. First of all, such thinking actually defies the call to submit. If a wife only ever respects her husband's authority when she agrees with what he's saying, well, then she's never actually practiced submission. Because that's just called agreement. When you're doing what somebody else says and it's what you already wanted, 
there's no submission required. Right? True submission means obeying when you don't agree with what the other person has to do. Secondly, Paul rules out any exceptions. Notice how he qualifies his instructions at the end of verse 22. He says that a wife's willingness to respect her husband's authority is comparable to her willingness to obey the Lord. Now, obviously, Paul's not putting husbands on the same level as the Lord. That's not his point. He's speaking in relative terms. He's saying that a husband's authority is his by virtue of his identity, not as a matter of having earned it. A husband doesn't earn the right to have the authority. It's his by identity because he's the husband, which is the same with Christ. We obey Christ because he is Lord, not because he gives us what we want. So shall wives respect and obey their husbands because they are the head of the household and their authority does not turn on whether or not they're making good decisions or even whether or not they're walking with the Lord, for that matter. The scriptures we're reading would seem to acknowledge that a wife's concern for her husband's worthiness will be of issue because of an interesting little happenstance of language in the text. In verse 22, the Greek word for own, your own husband, the Greek word for own is the word idios from which we get the word idiot. So more than a few students have taken note of the fact that the Lord is telling wives to obey their idiot husbands. I'm sure that wasn't intentional, but it sure does work out well, doesn't it? Point is that your willingness to submit does not turn on your husband's competence. Thirdly, in verse 23, Paul says a husband's authority in the home serves as a model of Christ's headship over the church. So as Christ is head of the church, so are husbands over their wives. And Paul's point is that there is something going on here in Christian marriage that's more than meets the eye. When husbands and wives observe their God-given roles, they are living out a spiritual testimony that God intends. We all know the scripture calls Christ is our groom and that the bride of Christ is the church. We all know this, I assume. But what the Bible's saying there is that the Lord has designated the institution of marriage to be a picture of his relationship to the church. And we're going to learn more about that relationship here in a moment as Paul gives commands to the husband. But it's already clear as we're starting that we're supposed to live out our marriage in a certain way because it's a testimony to a truth that God wants the world to know. And that's part of Paul's message in this chapter. Remember, this chapter is all about missional living. We've talked about this now on several occasions. You're supposed to live with a mission in mind. It doesn't matter what you want. It doesn't matter what makes us happy necessarily. It's not about we're here just for a while so we can enjoy this world God made for us and we can just be blissfully ignorant of bigger things. That's not a Christian's prerogative. We're on this earth for a mission. You're not here very long. Don't waste any time. And one of the major areas of your life as a Christian that you're supposed to direct to the purpose of Christ is your marriage. Your marriage is supposed to be missional. You can't afford to be short-sighted about anything, including how you act as a husband or wife. So we should be asking ourselves, how do I make the most of serving Christ in my role as a husband or as a wife? So for wives, and we've just gotten started, obviously we've got a whole family structure to get through, but starting with wives, that means, women, respecting your husband's authority in your marriage as a testimony of your relationship with Christ. That's Paul's argument in verse 24. When the church lives in subjection to Christ, he's glorified by our obedience, correct? And the world comes to know what pleases Christ by seeing how we live in obedience to his word. And the church that obeys Christ is a church that's being sanctified, right? Becoming more holy in the process? Well, that's all intended in this relationship picture of husband and wife. As a wife submits to her husband, even when he is foolish, she is testifying to her relationship 
in Christ. That is, she's testifying that she obeys as a matter of faith, not on some personal desire or decision. And as a result, when she does that, she moves in the direction of holiness and sanctification. Not because of her husband. In fact, in oftentimes, it's despite her husband. But because of her willingness to be obedient to the word of God and to her call in this missional life, she's serving a greater eternal purpose. Remember, God's goal for our life is not necessarily our happiness. It is our holiness. The Bible tells us that when we're all in heaven around the throne... We're going to see the Lord seated on his throne. Do you remember what the Bible says we're all going to be saying? It's not going to be love, love, love. It's not going to be joy, joy, joy. What is it going to be? Holy, holy, holy. We're going to be saying that because holiness is the defining characteristic of God and our holiness is what pleases God. You should have that attitude now. Am I being holy or am I too busy trying to be happy? And often those two things are counter to each other. Now, there's an ultimate happiness that comes out of being holy. Don't get me wrong. But there's a short road to a false form of happiness that gets in the way of our holiness. Now, of course, a wife's role in marriage is just the first of these six relationships. I don't intend to, to stay on this one all day. In fact, though it's the one that gets all the attention, it's actually not the most demanding in some respects. I think actually there's a more demanding call for submission on the part of the husband. And it's the one we need to spend a little more time on. And that starts in verse 25. Paul says... Husbands, love your wives, just as Christ also loved the church and gave himself up for her, so that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, that he might present to himself the church in all her glory, having no spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that she would be holy and blameless. So husbands ought also to love their own wives as their own bodies. He who loves his own wife loves himself for no one ever hated his own flesh but nourishes and cherishes it just as Christ also does the church because we are members of his body I hope you notice the husbands get twice as many verses as the wives and they're no less demanding Paul says to the husband love your wife now the Greek word for love is agape which you probably know is a form of love that is self-sacrificial a husband is called to place his wife's needs above his own needs now, earlier we said that a, a wife must recognize her husband's superior position in directing the affairs of marriage and of the home. Now what Paul is saying is that God calls the husband to recognize the superior place of his wife's needs in the marriage and in the home. This, too, is a form of submission on the part of the husband. While the wife is called to submit to the authority of her husband, the husband is called to submit to the needs of his wife. And I'll tell you, there are an awful lot of men who love the first half of that sentence and give no thought to the second half of that sentence. We could say, in a way, husbands are called to place their own desires in subjection to the desires of their wives. And here again, the standard Paul gives us for how this looks in practice is Christ's example with the church. Paul says, Christ's love for the church is evidenced in his willingness to lay his life down on the cross for us. The death being made necessary for the sake of someone else. And we know that the Christ man, Jesus in the flesh, preferred not to do this. It's very evident from the Gospels. In John's Gospel, Christ is seen praying to the Father that he might avoid this death if the Father would permit it. In the end, the Father's will was that Christ would endure the shame of the cross, and so he went forward, lay his life down obediently, and he did that, Paul says, so that he could make us holy. 
That he could sanctify us. That is, by the spilling of Christ's blood on that first Easter, the weekend we commemorate today, Jesus was paying the price for sin, for all who would place their trust in him by faith. The blood of Christ, we say, cleanses us of our sin, having paid the price for our sin. And we then become holy, sinless, by virtue of our faith in him. That's the message of the gospel. And in verse 26, Paul says, Christ cleansed us by the washing, or the word could be translated cleansing, of us by water. And the word for water could be translated baptism. It's baptizos in the Greek. Here's what Paul's saying. He's saying we were made clean, spiritually clean, by a baptism of God's word. As we came to believe in the testimony of the word of God, which is the gospel, we're washed clean of our sins, being baptized by the Holy Spirit as he comes to live in us at the moment of faith. That's what Paul's saying Christ did for us. And in verse 27, he says Christ made this sacrifice so that he could do a work in each of us. And that work was to make us holy, blameless, without any spot or wrinkle, that is to say without any defect, so that in a future day, when the full number of the church saints have been made complete and we are resurrected together on the day that we await, then the Lord will claim us as his bride, scripture says, in our new resurrected sinless bodies, and we will enter into his glory. So this is the picture that's building. Christ's sacrifice made possible a perfect sinless bride. A husband's sacrifice makes a sanctified partner in the body of Christ. That's the picture, husbands, that we're supposed to reflect in our marriage. We're supposed to sacrifice ourselves for the goal of glorifying our wives so that they might ultimately become more holy. And Paul says that's the true mark of how you love somebody. Most guys like to think themselves pretty chivalrous. Guys that take care of their wives would do anything for their wives. And they'll say things like, you know, I'd take a bullet for my wife. Guys like to think this way, I know. You know, some bad guy broke into my house one day and wanted to rape my wife or kill her. I'd stand in the way and I'd take the bullet for her. We tell ourselves these things, right? What guy wouldn't think he would do that for his wife? And yet that same guy won't pick up his underwear. That same guy won't do the dishes. That same guy has all these other honeydews that he ignores because they get in the way of what he wants to do. Friends, that's sacrificial living in an everyday sense. And it's the one that truly matters for our testimony because for every occurrence of a bad guy breaking in to shoot your wife, there are a million, maybe even an infinite number of opportunities in your walk to do something for her that she really wants. How many wives in here would trade taking the bullet for just doing the dishes? Because regardless of how godly we are in our own life, we are called to sacrifice continually for her as a testimony for what Christ did for the church. It's the way a husband is called to show submission. First to Christ in his word, and then secondly to his wife's needs at the expense of his own. That is a huge stumbling block for a lot of Christian husbands in my experience. In guy moments when you take retreats or you sit around and talk at a party or something, it's amazing to me. How many men will look at themselves as godly examples in so many areas of life, and yet, on the simplest things in life, they just can't seem to find a way to serve their wife's needs above their own. Men who think leadership in the church means being a tough guy, being a man's man, being a good provider, being a good father, a doting husband. I mean, these are the things we think matter. They may be helpful at times and even preferable, but they're not the same as loving your wife the way Christ loved the church. They're fundamentally different. In fact, in my experience, most guys who think they're loving their wives are actually loving themselves. 
They just love the way it feels to be a husband in those ways. Paul says you ought to love your wife as much as you love your own body. When he says body, he means what you want, what your body wants, what you desire. Usually, men are thinking about what they want for their body and what they desire. But Paul says they ought to love their wives in the same way that they would like to love their own bodies. That means take all that self-love and turn it the other direction. Stop asking what you like. Start asking what she likes in all areas of life. And in verse 29, Paul says, The husband who cares for his wife in this way is loving himself better He's speaking both in practical and in spiritual terms. First, practically, what he's saying is a husband who sacrifices for his wife in everyday ways creates the conditions in his marriage in which he will actually love his situation more than he would if he just tried to do everything for himself. Because he's going to see fruit in that relationship with his wife as she takes note of his sacrificial leadership in the home for her sake. Over time, her appreciation for his selflessness is only going to increase and make her love for him all the stronger under normal circumstances, I guess. Her joy in him will leave him finding greater satisfaction in her. Ironically, a selfish husband who lives only for himself gets less happiness and less contentment in his marriage over his lifetime. Because his relationship with his wife eventually becomes a contest of the will, doesn't it? And of course, in a family where you only have so much to go around, there's a scarcity of resources. Now it becomes a fight over who's going to spend more, who's going to get more, who's going to have more time, who's going to have more of this. And the more a husband does that for himself over his wife, the more unhealthy and the more unhappy his marriage will be. As a wise man once said, if mama ain't happy, ain't nobody happy. That's a little wisdom from down south. So husbands, if you truly want to love yourself more, That is to be happier. Begin by loving your better half first. More importantly, a husband who loves his wife in this way gains something spiritually. And this is the the second half of Paul's argument. And I think the one that we typically overlook. Paul says Christ cherished us, the church, because we are his body corporately. That is to say this. It was in Christ's own best interests that he would care for us that he would sanctify us, that he would make us holy, to strengthen us, to make us conform to his image. Because one day, he presents us to himself as his bride. So in that sense, we reflect his glory back upon him. The more sanctified we are, the better it is for him in the long run. Think about it this way. If Christ had neglected the needs of the church, then he's only robbing himself of glory in the end. Paul says a husband who nurtures his wife through sacrificial living will achieve a greater glory for himself in eternity. And the key to understanding this point is to remember, friends, husbands, speaking to the husbands for a moment, your wife is your sister in the Lord first. Jesus says that once we are in our new sinless eternal bodies, never to die again, we will be like the angels, not given into marriage anymore. We'll have no married partner. No amens, please. Which is to say... Long after your marriage is over, that woman sitting next to you is your sister in the Lord. And that eternal relationship is more important than your marriage relationship. Do you hear me? Your eternal relationship with your brother or sister in the Lord is more important than your current temporary marriage relationship. So how a husband lives with his wife has eternal implications for both of them. The husband is comparable to Christ in this analogy, which means the husband is in the leadership position in the home, just as Christ is our leader. And as we serve our wife in marriage, then, we are in a position to influence her sanctification, for better or for worse. We can make it harder for her to be a godly woman or easier. 
We can teach her or not. We can model for her or not what it means to be godly. And since we're all part of the same body of Christ, Paul says, in a sense, if you're not serving your wife well to encourage her to be a more godly woman, you're actually hurting your own body corporately. You're lowering the sanctification of your own body, of the corporate body of Christ. Peter says something very interesting about this same point. In 1 Peter 3, 7, he says, You husbands, in the same way, live with your wives in an understanding way, as with someone weaker, since she is a woman, and show her honor as a fellow heir of the grace of life, so that your prayers will not be hindered. Here's what Peter just said. He said, Husbands, you are to live with your wife in an understanding way, as with someone weaker. And what he means by weaker is in the sense of someone who has less power and authority in the marriage. That's what he means. As if to say, that is someone under your authority. Understand that. They are dependent on your leadership, and their sanctification lies in the balance to some degree. Live with her knowing that. And then, as a leader, make decisions that impact her spiritual walk in positive ways. Now, the Bible does not say, of course, that a husband is ultimately responsible for what a wife does in her walk or is is accountable for her mistakes necessarily. That's not the point. The point is you have an influence on it. Did you use your opportunity well or not? Peter says, show your wife honor. And then he says this, show her honor, not because she's your wife. Show her honor because she's a sister in the Lord. She's a fellow heir of Christ. Think about how your relationship in your marriage is going to reflect in the kingdom. When you guys are walking around in the kingdom together and we bump into each other in one day or another, it won't be, oh, there's so-and-so's husband or wife. But what we will remember is how that person's spouse worked to further that individual's walk with Christ. And we don't want to walk around in that time for a thousand plus years remembering that as a husband or wife, we didn't do very well by virtue of our spouse and what they needed, and what needs we could have met, and what sanctifying work we could have been a part of for their sake. If you hold your wife in contempt, husbands, or if you take advantage of her, or if you abuse her, or if you just fail to lead her in godliness, Peter says you are hindering your own prayers. What he means is you're working against your own best interests where God is concerned. While you seek the Lord's favor in your prayers, Peter says you are actually distancing yourself from him in your conduct. We ought to think very hard about what it means to be a leader in the home. I find this not just in marriage, but probably everywhere. Corporate life, military. A lot of people want leadership, but like a dog chasing a car, not a lot of them know what to do with it once they get it. And men, you have a leadership role. The Bible assigns it to you, and we take that with great satisfaction, don't we? It's a responsibility. An internal responsibility. Now, friends, when a husband and a wife live together, according to these instructions, three good things happen, as I can see. First, both become a perfect complement to one another in marriage. The wife respecting her husband's authority, offering her counsel, while honoring his opinions and submitting to his decisions. The husband... Seeking what's best for his wife, sacrificing his own desire for her sake, enabling her to become more holy in the process. Both picturing the relationship that exists between the church and Christ. Secondly, when husband and wives live in the church this way, playing their assigned roles, they each become more sanctified, which is the whole purpose of us following the Lord in the meantime. A wife who's encouraged 
by her husband's leadership and respect for her needs is more likely to be godly in her response to him. And a husband who encourages his wife's submission by living self-sacrificially and putting her needs first is going to be all the better at leading as he sees his wife respond to his leadership. It's a, what do they call it, a virtuous cycle? Each one working for the needs of the other. They're both being encouraged to obey more. They're both being sanctified. In the end, each lives as holy a life as possible. And then, as we each arrive before the judgment seat of Christ, standing alone to give account for who we were in Christ, both of us stand the best possible testimony. Finally, and most importantly, a godly marriage serves its missional purpose. And what is the missional purpose again? Reflecting Christ to the world. Paul explains this in the last piece of Ephesians 5. Verse 31, he says, For this reason a man shall leave his father and mother and shall be joined to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is great, but I'm speaking with reference to Christ and the church. Nevertheless, each individual among you also is to love his own wife even as himself, and the wife must see to it that she respects her husband. You remember in the Garden of Eden, when God spoke to Adam and said, It's not good for man to be alone. You remember that moment? Right before a woman comes along. He didn't mean... He needs a housekeeper. He didn't mean he needs someone in the bedroom. He didn't mean he needs someone who would do his laundry or be there to clean and cook for him. That wasn't the point. He meant that it would not be good for Adam, after the fall that God knew was coming, to go out into a world, a fallen world, with sin, with the enemy now set against him, and to go out without any support in the face of those circumstances. That's what God was referring to. It's not good that man be alone once he falls into sin. He needs a partner. He needs a wife to help him fight the enemy and fight his own flesh. Someone who would encourage him into greater obedience. Someone who would support him in his own walk of faith. And likewise, Adam could do those same things for his partner, leading her into greater sanctification. That was the idea of, it's not good to be alone. No more than if you were to go against any enemy, do you want to go into the battle by yourself? And then Paul now, quoting from that place in Genesis 2, about a man leaving his father and mother and joining himself to a wife, he now reveals to us this New Testament mystery, that God intended the union of a man and wife in marriage to be a picture of the union of Christ to his church. Now we've been speaking about this picture throughout today's teaching. It's something we all just understood already, I assume. But friends, we only know this because Paul revealed it right here. This is one of the eight mysteries of the New Testament, one of the four mysteries that Paul reveals in his writing, the one that we're talking about today, that a Christian's mission in marriage is to show the world our relationship to Christ in a very specific sense. And the picture works both ways. The world can learn about Christ's relationship with the church by observing a godly marriage at work, how a husband treats his wife. And likewise, the world can learn a lot about godly marriage by watching how the church responds to our husband, Christ. When marriage in the church operates in the way Paul has outlined here, you know what you find? You find a beautiful marriage reflecting a beautiful picture of how we are united to Christ by faith. Friends, that's missional focus when it comes to marriage. If you think of yourself missional, I evangelize, I read the Bible, I try my best to witness for Christ. Keep doing those things, but don't overlook the most important witness opportunity God has given any married couple. Is your marriage structured in such a way that you are a walking billboard for who Christ is and how he relates to his church? That's the most powerful way you and I, in an everyday sense, can proclaim Christ, the one who died to make us holy. 
Let's go out and make that our goal. Let's make our marriage a mission field. Heavenly Father, I pray on behalf of husbands and wives here today, Father, on this day, we remember your son's death for our sake. He is our groom, spiritually speaking. He sacrificed everything so that we could become holy and blameless one day to enter into his presence, glorified as his risen bride, the Bible calls us. I pray for husbands, Father, that we would see Christ as our model, that we would set aside our selfishness, that we would not lord over our family, but adopt a servant's heart. As Jesus washed the feet of the disciples, I pray, Father, husbands would lift up, cherish, and care for their wives. And, Father, as the church is called to submit and obey to our Master Christ, I pray that wives would take on that role in the family willingly, lovingly, as an honoring way of representing the church's relationship to our groom. That they would submit to husbands who love them dearly, honoring their decisions, and working with them in the care of the family. Father, we pray for marriages that reflect you so that in everything we do, Father, we may serve that purpose of living with a missional mind. Thank you, Lord, for our day, for our family time to come, all the things that each of us have planned. Father, let it be a blessed and enjoyable day in memory of your son's death for our sake. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.